Having completed our study in the Gospel of Mark, I'd like to direct your attention back to the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. You see that we're going to be in Deuteronomy chapter 32 this morning. But before you go to Deuteronomy 32, you can open up to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Now, the book of Deuteronomy is one of those that you probably haven't heard preached a lot in the pulpit of the church that you grew up in or that you've been in. And I know that I haven't spent a whole lot of time in Deuteronomy in this pulpit here over the years. But actually, I would like to someday preach a series on the book of Deuteronomy. But today, we're just going to get a one-shot look into one of the most important chapters in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 32, which is known as the Song of Moses. But as you know, Moses being a prophet, Moses having received not his own word, but the word of the Lord, sometimes these names can be a little misleading. And actually, that might be a better title to call this the Song of Yahweh the God of Israel, his covenant name that he gave when he revealed himself to Moses and to the people of Israel through the prophet. It's really God's song that he has here in Deuteronomy chapter 32. But before we get there, I'd like to direct your attention at the beginning of our message to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. Now the book of Deuteronomy is a very preachable book in the Old Testament because many reasons. One reason, it is the most quoted book in the Old Testament in the New Testament. So when you're reading the words of Jesus Christ and you're reading the teaching of the apostles, they go back over and over again to the book of Deuteronomy. Now, if you've been a part of our Old Testament survey, you've gotten a taste for what's in the book of Deuteronomy. As We spent several weeks looking into the book as a whole but then also examining how is it that we, as New Testament Christians, are supposed to relate to the Old Testament Scriptures. And what we have been reminded of recently, and I'd like to remind us all of together, is that though we are not under the law, we are supposed to listen to the law. While we are not under the law of Moses, being a part of a different covenant that God made with a different people, yet the law of Moses was written for us. That's what Paul reveals in Romans chapter 15 when he says, whatever was written in earlier times was written for our sake, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. And so God had you in mind when he wrote the book of Deuteronomy. Don't think, well, that's just ancient stuff for ancient people. But no, it's the living word of God for you today. And so I hope that through our Old Testament survey and our adult Sunday school class and this one-shot sermon that we have here in our pulpit, that it's going to encourage you to be an Old Testament reading Christian, that you will be a Christian who listens to the law, even though you recognize that you are not under the law. That's what Paul says in Galatians 4.21. Do you not listen to the law? We are supposed to listen, though we are not under the law. So Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 6, some of the most foundational, important verses in the Bible, it says this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. And it goes on with further instruction there. So these are the words of God 
to his chosen nation, the people of Israel, but speaking through the prophet to Israel, he also speaks for your benefit. That God wants you to know that the greatest, the foremost of all of the commandments that God has given is the command to love God with all of your heart. This is what Jesus our Lord taught and reiterated as we were studying through the Gospel of Mark. We saw when he was asked the question, what's the most important commandment of God? He came back to Deuteronomy 6 and talked about this command to love the Lord your God. And that's really the the purpose of the book of Deuteronomy is to teach the people of Israel how to love God. You know, everybody thinks they love God, but the test of whether or not you actually love God is the test of obedience. This is not something that's just an Old Testament truth and now things have changed in the New Testament, but Jesus himself taught, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And as we had in our scripture reading moments ago from Hebrews chapter 13, God never changes. The Lord is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So when you go back and you hear the voice of God speaking to the people of Israel through the prophet Moses and what is revealed about the heart of God, what is revealed about the character of God, what is revealed about the moral standards of God, the mercy of God, the compassion of God, the justice of God, the jealousy of God, none of that has changed. God still is the same God. He hasn't changed in his perspectives. He hasn't changed in his attitudes. He hasn't changed in his values. God is the same. Jesus is the same. And so the Old Testament is for you because it reveals to you who God is. Not only does the Old Testament reveal to you who God is, but it also reveals to you who you are in relationship to God, that you are a sinner. That's where Paul starts in the letter to the Romans when he lays out the gospel, which is what this church is centered on and what is our our message, the good news of Christ. He starts by proclaiming that there are none righteous. There are none who do good. That all have turned aside. All have gone astray. And so the doctrine of the sinfulness of mankind is the very first step in understanding the gospel of who Jesus is and what he's come to do. It's a a truth deserving of full acceptance, the Apostle Paul says, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost, Paul confessed. And I think we all feel similarly to the Apostle Paul when the light of God's word comes and shines on our hearts and shows us the nature of sin. And we see in the mirror of God's word our own sinfulness, our own unworthiness, our own need of a savior. And so the law reveals God in his righteousness and character. It reveals us in our sinfulness and that we are not like God. And there's no better chapter that I can think of in order to teach those most important truths that teach us to love God, as Deuteronomy 6 says, than Deuteronomy chapter 32, the Song of Moses. So let's move ahead then from the beginning of Deuteronomy to its end. And though I've got Deuteronomy 32 here on the screen for our our main text, it actually starts back in chapter 31. Remember that there were originally no chapter breaks, that uh, books were just given as whole books without verse notations or chapter notations. And so the Song of Moses, which we might again say the Song of Yahweh, the Song of Israel's God, actually uh, the introduction to it is in chapter 31, verses 15 through 30. And so we want to start there to be able to understand why did God give this song to the people of Israel And what are we supposed to learn from it? So, 
Follow along in your Bibles. I'll read for us Deuteronomy 31, verses 15 through 30. The Lord appeared. The Lord is that covenant name of God, Yahweh. So this is the Lord's song. It's Yahweh's song. The Lord said to Moses, as he appeared in the pillar of cloud and he stood over the entrance of the tent, he said, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers. Then this people will rise and whore after the foreign gods among them in the land that they are entering. And they will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day. And I will forsake them and hide my face from them. And they will be devoured. And many evils and troubles will come upon them, so that they will say in that day, Have not these evils come upon us because our God is not among us? And I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil that they have done, because they have turned to other gods. Now therefore, write this song and teach it to the people of Israel. Put it in their mouths that this song may be a witness for me against the people of Israel. For when I have brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to give to their fathers, and they have eaten and are full and grown fat, they will turn to other gods and serve them and despise me and break my covenant. And when many evils and troubles have come upon them, this song shall confront them as a witness, for it will live unforgotten in the mouths of their offspring. For I know what they are inclined to do even today, before I have brought them into the land that I swore to give. So Moses wrote this song the same day and taught it to the people of Israel. And the Lord commissioned Joshua, the son of Nun, and said, Be strong and courageous, for you shall bring the people of Israel into the land that I swore to give them. I will be with you. When Moses had finished writing the words of this law in a book to the very end, Moses commanded the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, Take this book of the law and put it by the side of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there for a witness against you. For I know how rebellious and stubborn you are. Behold, even today, while I am yet alive with you, you have been rebellious against the Lord. How much more after my death? Assemble to me all the elders of your tribes and your officers, that I may speak these words in their ears and call heaven and earth to witness against them. For I know that after my death you will surely act corruptly and turn aside from the way that I have commanded you. And in the days to come, evil will befall you, because you will do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger through the work of your hands." Then Moses spoke the words of this song until they were finished in the ears of all the assembly of Israel. Wow, okay, quite a song that we're prepared to learn now with that introduction setting it up. Not the normal type of song that you would think of as being something that is a joyful song. This doesn't sound like it's going to be a very joyful song. This is a song of unrequited love where God is faithful in his love to the people of Israel, and he is a husband, he is a father to his people, but his people are completely unfaithful back towards him. And so it's a song of bitterness. It's a song of sorrow. It's a song even of anger and fury. And so there is a musical notation for every emotion. 
Music is emotion. And with a piano like this, you can produce an infinite variety of songs. And each song has an emotional element, a component to it. Well, there are bitter songs. And this is one of those bitter songs. Let's take a look then at the Song of Moses, starting in chapter 32, verses 1 through 14. Before I read it, remember once again, this is a prophecy of what Israel is going to do after the death of Moses. They are going to, as it says there in verse 29, you will do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. What is evil in the sight of the Lord is what is truly evil. Some people in the world call evil good and they call good evil. And they say, well, who can really know what is really good and what's really evil? Because different people have different opinions. Well, it's what the Lord sees as evil. That is what is evil. And to do evil in the sight of the Lord is to provoke him to anger. And that's what we're going to see in the song. So I'll read it. You follow along. We'll take it in a few chunks here. The first chunk reveals to us the Lord's character. Remember I said the law is given to us, written for you, so that you can know who God is. And here we see God's character revealed in the first 14 verses. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass, and like showers upon the herb. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is he not your father who created you, who made you and established you? Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father, and he will show you. Your elders, and they will tell you. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. He found him in a desert land, and in the howling waste of the wilderness, he encircled him, he cared for him, he kept him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. The Lord alone guided him. No foreign god was with him. He made him ride on the high places of the land, and he ate the produce of the field, and he suckled him with honey out of the rock and oil out of the flinty rock, curds from the herd and milk from the flock, with fat of lambs, rams of Bashan and goats, with the very finest of the wheat. And you drank foaming wine made from the blood of the grape. Here, you have a hint at what is coming with Israel's treachery there in a couple of verses. But the overwhelming emphasis in the first 14 verses is the goodness and the graciousness of God towards the people of Israel. God had appointed lands, 
and given a place to live on this beautiful earth to all the nations. But as you see in verse 9, Jacob was his allotted heritage. The Lord's portion is the people of Israel. What a privileged position they have and what a place that God had prepared for them to live on the earth. A land flowing with milk and honey, as it often says, but not just milk and honey, also the blood of the grape, as it says, and the oil out of the rock and the produce of the field. All of this good things that God had given to him and that God alone was the one who had done this. That Israel is supposed to remember who it was that gave them their life. Who it was that brought them forth and gave them birth as a nation. That it was the Lord and the Lord alone who caused Abraham to be able to have a child, who made a covenant with Abraham. It was the Lord and the Lord alone who brought Israel out of Pharaoh's Egypt and freed them from their slavery. And it will be the Lord and the Lord alone who, through Joshua, leads them into the Holy Land and and gives them cities that they hadn't built and fields that they hadn't planted, vineyards that they hadn't worked on. And God had given everything to the people of Israel, and yet the people of Israel are going to repay the Lord as a foolish and senseless people, a crooked and twisted generation acting corruptly against him. Notice the father and children metaphor that is being started here in these verses. You see in verse 5 that they are no longer his children because they have dealt corruptly with him, but that God has provided for them. He has protected them the way that a father provides for and protects his children. This is why the fifth commandment is such an important commandment. It reveals the heart of mankind. That when children forget their parents... They forget that it's my mother who bore me in her womb. It's my mother who fed me at her breast, who held me in her arms. It's my father who protected me and provided for me so that I had food to eat and was not harmed by all the dangers in the world around us and provided a roof over my head. And the children grow up and they forget that. And they forsake their parents and they curse their parents. They say all kinds of terrible things about them. That reveals the sin that is in the heart of mankind, that ingratitude that thus repays a parent. Well, that's the way it is with us and God. We are like those kind of children. The Lord's testimony here in verses 1 through 14 is a song of instruction for rebels. It starts off by declaring God's greatness and his faithfulness and his righteousness. And notice verse 4. He's called the rock. The rock. His work is perfect. Why this title? Why call God the rock? Well, it's a picture of unchangeableness. A rock is something that abides throughout the years. Something that is immovable, unchangeable, faithful. And the rock was a picture of security for the people living in this time and place. Like a mountain fortress, it's a place of security from the enemy. And it becomes a major theme in the song. Not only is it mentioned there in verse 4, but if you look at verse 15, you see that they scoffed at the rock of salvation. And then again in verse 18, you were unmindful of the rock that bore you. It's a strange mixture of metaphors, right? You've got the security of the rock and that this rock is giving birth to the people of Israel. And normally rocks don't give birth, right? 
And then verses 30 to 31, you find the imagery again brought up where you see that they are put to flight by their enemy because their rock had sold them. Their place of protection, their fortress, their security had given them up. And that's why they are without protection. And verse 31 just compares the rock of the nations with the rock of Israel. And that he is the only one who is a true place of security. There's no security in this world outside of God himself. So you see time and time again, once more in verse 37 the picture of the rock. Here, the contrast of God once again with the gods of the nations, that their rock in which they took refuge is not a trustworthy rock like the God of Israel. Also in these verses, having noticed the emphasis on God's unchangeable faithfulness in the picture of the rock, noticing God's fatherly provision and protection as the one who has begotten the nation, Also, we want to notice the contrast with Israel. That Israel, in contrast to God's perfect ways, God's faithfulness, Israel is just the opposite. They are unfaithful and they are full of iniquity, not being just and upright like God. So comparing and contrasting human sin with God's righteousness, human unfaithfulness with God's faithfulness. All men are liars, But God is found to be true. And that is the theme, that is the message of the song that is set up in the first 14 verses. So then we see in the following verses the contrast between the Lord's character and the Lord's corrupt children. As you see on the outline, verses 5 and 6 already spilled the beans, so to speak, already gave us the preview of this next section in Deuteronomy chapter 32. But verses 15 and 18 then focus on it. So let's read those. Verse 15, but Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, stout, and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. This is a prophecy. Here Moses is speaking proleptically of what is going to happen after he dies. And this is exactly what does happen after Moses dies. God knew from the beginning when he selected Israel, when he called them, when he brought them into the land and gave them Moses, gave them Joshua, when he went out before them and destroyed the enemies, he knew they were going to do this, and yet he still gave them all that he gave them. If you as a parent knew that your child was going to grow up and hate you, would you treat them any differently as a child? Well, God is fully knowing what is going to happen, and he loved Israel anyway. Notice how prosperity leads to forsaking of God in Israel's life. I think this is important for us to notice because it's still the tendency among Christians today. God doesn't change and human nature doesn't change. And when I say human nature, what I really mean is sinfulness, right? God doesn't change and sin doesn't change. And what tends to be the case with us as sinners is that when we are poor, 
when we don't have our liberty, when we are enslaved, when we are treated unjustly, then we are very religious. And we're full of prayers. We think, oh God, hear my prayer. Help me out of this difficult situation. And if you help me, then I'm going to love you and serve you for the rest of my life. It's very common for mankind to be full of prayers and trusting in God and be devoted to God when we are in poverty and need, when our health is gone, when our relationships are a mess, then all of a sudden we're busy about seeking God. But then everything gets better and our relationships are good and our finances are good and our health is good and then what happens? You forget God. You get so caught up with other things. We're so prosperous. And prosperity means that we can be busy. We can be busy with all of the wonderful things that God has given to us. And that's what happened with Israel. Prosperity led to them forsaking God. The Puritans who came to our country and were seeking the religious freedom to worship God, having been persecuted, poor in the old world, they came here and they worked and they prayed and they served the Lord. And religion begat prosperity. And you know what they noticed? Those who came after those first generations and were living in the prosperity, one preacher opined, he said, Religion begat prosperity, and the daughter has devoured the mother. That prosperity just eats up true religion, and people forget God, and they're just so busy enjoying their lives. Here we are. We have food, we have shelter, we have medical care, we have so much. We're busy. If I asked you what your week was like, you'd probably say busy. My week was busy. But what are we busy about? What are we busy with? Are we busy worshiping and serving the Lord? Or are we busy serving ourselves? Or even worse, serving demons? Notice what it says there in verse 17. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods to gods they had never known. And so here's early insight. This is a very ancient poem, going back to 1400 B.C. And God is already revealing that the so-called gods of the nations, whether you're talking about Moloch or Baal or any of the gods of Egypt, that the spirits who are behind the lies and the deceptions of the pagan gods are unclean spirits, that they are the spirits of demons. And that the fallen angels, who are known as demons, they lead mankind astray. They lead mankind away from God. So that instead of worshiping God, we believe the lies and worship in a way that we are taught to worship by the demons. And this has not changed. The false religions that are in the world are not just human mistakes. They're like, oops, we tried to create a good religion and we just didn't quite get it right. The false religions that are in the world are demonic. False prophets don't just make up their religion. They get their ideas. They get their inspiration from the spiritual world. Come with me to the New Testament. I want to show you this in 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4 verse 1. 
Moses was speaking prophetically about what was going to happen in the life of Israel under the Old Covenant. Now in 1 Timothy chapter 4, we come to the end of the lifetime of the Apostle Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament for us, who was filled with God's Spirit to instruct the church in how we were supposed to live with God in the New Covenant, how we were supposed to be faithful to the one who has caused us to be born again. And now the Holy Spirit, speaking through Paul, predicts what's going to happen in the lifetime of the church. Now that Christ has left us, now that he's in heaven, now that Paul is gone, the apostles are gone, what is the church going to do? 1 Timothy 4, verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, that's these times, these last times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. You can't just look back at Old Testament Israel and say, oh, it's so awful what they did, worshiping Molech and worshiping Baal and and going after all those false prophets and false gods and they were worshiping demons with the idols and the sacrifices and, oh, I'm so glad that we don't do anything like that. Well, we don't have the temple to the idol and we don't have the sacrifices and things going on. But what do we have? We've got the teachings of demons. And there are many Christians who are prosperous, living in this wonderful country that God has given to us. And they're not faithful to God. And they're sitting in churches, beautiful buildings, with august pastors who are listening to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. That's going on right now. God has warned us. He's expressly told us this is going to happen. And and I see it all over. Do you see it? Notice what it says in verse 2. It's through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Well, how many churches are there that forbid marriage? And say, well, if you really want to be holy, if you really want to be a a priest, then you can't get married. That's a doctrine of a demon. And what about those churches that teach that you have to abstain from certain foods? Don't listen to these deceitful spirits. You go to a church and they, they don't preach the stumbling block of the cross. They don't preach the sinfulness of humanity. They just preach the love of God. They don't talk about the wrath of God, the anger of God. That's a doctrine of a demon. That's what the demons are trying to get you to believe about God. You go to a church where they teach differently on God's morality. And they say, well, you know, sex outside of marriage isn't that bad. And uh, we're not going to really talk about that. We're not going to condemn that. And homosexuality, love is love. We, we celebrate that. We'll even put the, the gay pride flag up outside of our church. That's a doctrine of a demon. They're not sacrificing to the Lord. Let's see what God thinks about that back in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 32. God has not changed. The way that he responds to the corrupt children who have forgotten their maker is very similar to how he's going to respond to the corrupt children who have forgotten their maker today as well. We've got the Lord's correction in verses 19 through 33. Follow along as I read that for us. The Lord saw it and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and his daughters. And he said, 
I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faithfulness. They have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I'll make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. For a fire is kindled by my anger, and it burns to the depths of Sheol, devours the earth and its increase, and sets on fire the foundations of the mountains. And I will heap disasters upon them, I will spend my arrows on them. They shall be wasted with hunger and devoured by plague and poisonous pestilence. I will send the teeth of beasts against them with the venom of things that crawl in the dust. Outdoors the sword shall bereave and indoors terror. For young man and woman alike, the nursing child and the man of gray hairs. I would have said... I will cut them to pieces. I will wipe them from human memory had I not feared provocation by the enemy, lest their adversaries should misunderstand, lest they should say, Our hand is triumphant. It was not the Lord who did all this. For they are a nation void of counsel, and there is no understanding in them. If they were wise, they would understand this. They would discern their latter end. How could one have chased a thousand and two have put ten thousand to flight unless their rock had sold them? And the Lord had given them up. For their rock is not as our rock. Our enemies are by themselves. For their vine comes from the vine of Sodom and from the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of poison. Their clusters are bitter. Their wine is the poison of serpents and the cruel venom of asps. An interesting song, is it not? God had the people of Israel learn it. He had them memorize it. He had them pass it on from generation to generation so that when all these things came to pass they'd know that God had warned them from the beginning. They wouldn't be able to blame God for their folly. The Lord's correction takes place in history as it is written here. And as you read through the rest of the Old Testament, you find out that this is exactly what happens to Israel. You can read about it in the book of Lamentations. You can read about it in the book of Jeremiah the weeping prophet. You can read about it in the historical context in Second Kings with the Assyrian conquest and with the Babylonian conquest. In fact, let's go to Second Kings chapter 17. Second Kings 17. The history of the world is the world's judgment. And when you look back at the 20th century, perhaps the bloodiest century mankind has ever experienced, don't think that's just the past. Mankind continues to rebel against God. Mankind continues to forget their maker. Mankind continues to provoke him by worshiping demons. And there will be more trouble. There will be more judgment. I think we might be very close to the trouble and judgment predicted in the book of Revelation. The days that Jesus Christ talked about and he said, if God did not cut those days short, there would not be any life left on earth. Human life would be gone. We'll read about it here in 2 Kings, the judgment upon Israel, chapter 17. In the ninth year of Hosea, verse 6, the king of Assyria captured Samaria, and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Halah and on the Habor, the river of Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes. It's not included there is all of the carnage, all of the torture. That's a very brief historical statement, but let's look at the cause for their destruction. The Assyrians were fierce. The Assyrians were cruel. 
And this was the end, the death of the nation because of idolatry. Because of idolatry. It wasn't man's inhumanity to the man that brought this about. It was man's ungratefulness to God that brought this about. Let's be clear on that. Verse 7. This occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods. And he walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel and in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. And the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. They built for themselves high places in all their towns from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves pillars and ashram on every high hill and under every green tree. And there they made offerings on all the high places as the nations did whom the Lord carried away before them. And they did wicked things provoking the Lord to anger. And they served idols of which the Lord had said to them, you shall not do this. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet, starting with Moses and every seer, saying, turn from your ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers that I sent to you by my servants the prophets. But they would not listen. They were stubborn as their fathers had been. They did not believe in the Lord their God. They despised his statutes and his covenants that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols and became false. And they followed the nations that were around them concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves metal images of two calves and they made an Asherah and worshipped all the host of heaven and served Baal. And they burned their sons and their daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. But Judah also did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the customs that Israel had introduced. And the Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel and afflicted them and gave them into the hands of plunderers until he had cast them out of his sight. When he had torn Israel from the house of David, they made Jeroboam the son of Nebat king, and Jeroboam drove Israel forth from following the Lord and made them commit great sin. The people of Israel walked in all the sins that Jeroboam did. They did not depart from them until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight as he had spoken by all his servants, the prophets. So Israel was exiled from their own land to Assyria until this day. Back to Deuteronomy. It doesn't end there, thankfully. God and his mercy and his grace gets the last say. Mankind's unfaithfulness does not get the last say. And so let's read verses 34 to 43. Pick it up again in Deuteronomy 32, 34. Is not this laid up in store with me, sealed up in my treasuries? Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand and their doom comes swiftly. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. When he sees that their power is gone and there's none remaining, bond or free, then he will say, Where are their gods, the rock in which they took refuge? Who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offerings? Let them rise up and help you. Let them be your protection. See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God besides me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver 
out of my hand. For I lift up my hand to heaven and swear, as I live forever, if I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives from the long-haired heads of the enemy. Rejoice with him, O heavens. Bow down to him, all gods, for he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. The Old Testament ends with Assyria cruelly destroying the northern kingdom and the Babylonians burning the temple and taking all of its treasuries back and placing them in the household of their idol. But no, that's not where the Old Testament ends. The Old Testament ends with Assyria being destroyed by Babylon and Babylon being destroyed by the Medes and the Persians and God's people returning to their land after God has judged those whom he used to judge them. God brings out his flashing sword and destroys the nations for all of their idolatry, for all of their evil that they have committed in his sight. And he does so in order to keep his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to keep his promises that he gave through all of the prophets so that the people of Israel would be back in the land and set up for what God was going to do next. And God waited, and at just the right time, he did next. He sent the Lord Jesus Christ to the people of Israel as prophesied, as predicted, the exact time, the exact place. And God's grace was made incarnate. And God walked on the earth among his people and healed their diseases and proclaimed the truth and taught them the kingdom of God is near. Israel once again revolted, rejected, spurned God and did even greater evil in God's sight by crucifying Jesus, as we've just been studying in the Gospel of Mark. But that's not the end of the story either. And so now God brings the blessings of Christ to all the nations and the Gospel of His death and His resurrection is proclaimed for 2,000 years among the nations. And it's come to you and it's come to me and we've become children of God with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places given to us. And we are warned to not be like Israel. We are warned to not pay attention to deceitful spirits, to not be unfaithful to our God, but to hold fast to Him and to love Him with all of our heart, to be obedient to Him as a manifestation of our love. We love Him because He has first loved us. And so, our message to the nations, our message to Firth, and Nebraska, and the United States, and Mexico, and Canada, and Europe, and Africa, and Australia, and China, is God has given you wonderful blessings. There's only one God. And you have not worshipped Him. You have not kept the law that He wrote upon your heart, but you have spurned Him, and rejected Him, and worshipped yourself, and followed demons. And He will destroy you in His anger, and His wrath, and His fury, unless you repent. And that the day of judgment is fast approaching, but today is a day of grace. Today is a day where sinners can become saints 
where those who have been hateful to God can be completely cleansed and forgiven, restored, and receive the gift of eternal life. The more things change, the more they stay the same. God is still the same God. People are still the same people. And grace is still grace. But there's a time where grace, the day of grace ends. And the day of judgment comes. And God has warned us. We want to warn everybody around us. The final verse, Isaiah 45, verse 22. God spoke it through the prophet Isaiah 700 years before Christ and the Spirit of God is speaking it still today in our hearts, in our minds, through us, with Christ and His Word in us. And we tell the world, turn to God and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For He alone is God and there is no other. That's what Israel is supposed to learn. That's what people today are supposed to learn.